we're jumping into a new series right now. And uh, in case you can't tell, I'm excited about it. It's called Life Altering Prayer. In the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through what is it, what do I need to know that will greatly affect my prayer life? And maybe it's just needs some, some, some charge and some power and energy in my prayer life. Maybe I just need to revamp the whole thing. But what is it that we need to know? And this week we're going to look at counting on God's love. As we understand how much God loves us, I guarantee if you focus on that, it will greatly affect and change your prayer life. The next week we're going to look at counting on God's wisdom. And his discernment and his knowledge and all that God has. And then Pastor Tim's going to wrap up on uh, in the third week here in the month of June. We're going to be looking at counting on God's power. And in all of these, really, and you look, if you saw in the bulletin, we're going to be looking at Romans 8. And you say, yeah, it really doesn't talk about prayer that much. But I will tell you this. When you see and when you focus on how much God loves you, you'll want to spend time with Him. It will change things. There's a story that has been told, maybe some of you have have heard of it, but it was a father and a son, and the son was getting ready for high school graduation. And this family was a very affluent family, and they were just really, to be honest, downright rich. They lived in a wonderful, nice, expensive neighborhood. And it was kind of the custom amongst all those there in that neighborhood that when their children got to graduation age, that they would go out and the father would go out and buy them a car. Well, Jason was the son, and Jason and his father spent many a weekends leading up to graduation, going out to all the different car dealerships, picking out just the right car that Jason had his heart set on. And they finally come to the day of graduation, and after the graduation ceremony, they went back to the house, and and his father comes out and has this box. And he comes up to Jason, and they're all celebrating the graduation, and he hands Jason the box, and of course Jason's just sure he knows what's in that box, and he says, it's kind of a little big, but uh, uh, I'm sure there is a set of car keys in there. And so he rips open the box, and inside the box he finds a Bible. And his name is engraved on the edge of the Bible, and and he picks up the Bible and looks underneath looking for those car keys, Turns it upside down, and there's no car keys. Well, his confusion very quickly turns to frustration, and his frustration very quickly turns to anger, and he just can't believe they spent all of this, and his dad didn't get, and he gets so mad that he storms out of the house. And his father's trying to get his attention and trying to to call him back in, but he was gone and he spends the next couple of years estranged from his father with no communication. He was so angry about not getting what he had his heart set on. Well, a couple of years down the row, um, the father dies a little prematurely. And the son hears about the father's death, comes back for the funeral services, and they're walking through 
uh, everything that was going to take place in the inheritance and dealing with all of the financial matters. And he goes up to his room that hasn't been moved or touched and sitting on the desk is that Bible that his father had given him a couple years earlier for graduation. And he picks up that Bible and he dusts off the dust and he starts to flip through and he sees a piece of paper. And he pulls out that piece of paper and it was a cashier's check dated on the day of graduation for the exact amount for the car that he wanted. It had been there all along. You know, as I think about that story, and maybe you've heard that before, but I thought so many times, is that not reflective of how I approach God? How I approach my father? Because I'm so set on what I want, and I'm so confused when I don't get what I want, and sometimes I do get what I want, I don't even realize that I'm getting what I want. But as we look into this passage this morning, hopefully the one thing that we will get as we leave this place is the fact that we can count on God's love. We can count on the love of the Father and that He wants the very best for us in everything. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you, turn to Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 31 to 39. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, just slip up your hand. The ushers are, will be moving up and down the aisles. I'd love to get you a Bible in your hands and we'll be looking from this passage and Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. We're going to look, point number one, as I just said, is the fact that God loves us and wants the very best for us. Thank Him. God loves us and wants the very best for us. So thank Him. Starting in verse 31, Romans 8. What shall we say... To these things. What shall we say to these things? The Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans. And he's been working through the passage. And he's making reference to the previous verses. And so he says, after all the things that we've just covered. These previous verses. What shall we say now? After we've looked at these things. So what are those things that he had just gone through? And you look back in the previous verses. And we see... Even in the paragraph above, verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Verse 27, and He searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. Verse 28 says that we know that God works all things together for our good. Verse 29, that those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Literally saying, to make us be and look like Jesus And then he goes on and we see the perspective of what takes place at salvation and what is it from God's perspective, what's going on. And we see that he, uh, whom he predestined, he also called and whom he called, he justified and whom he justified, he glorified. And we see all of the work of God of bringing us to the point of salvation and then the process of sanctification and then on into the future glory. Just an amazing passage, rich in doctrine of all that God has done. And we look last week of of then what our response should be of, of confessing Him as Lord and believing that He's raised from the dead. And when all that's in place, the relationship that we can have with God. 
After all of those things, Paul says, now what can we say to top that? Literally is what he's saying. What else can we say? And he goes on, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the God who did all of that, if he's on your side, who can possibly stand up against that? And that's really what starts off this passage. If God is for us, who can oppose us? And he gives even more detail, verse 23. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And he says, look, if this God loved you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, what do you think he'll do for you? I don't know about you guys. Some of you I know fairly well seated here. Some of you I don't really know, but even the ones that I know fairly well, and I like a lot, and yet I'm not real sure I would be willing to sacrifice my only son. But that's exactly what God did for us. God loved it. He lived it out. He exampled that love by giving of his son. He continues, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Literally, what what Paul's saying, so how in the world could we question God's graciousness? As we're talking about life-altering prayer, sometimes the problem is we really don't believe that God wants the very best for us. We we don't believe maybe that God is going to work in this situation or in our lives. And he's saying, look, if God was willing to do all of this, how can we even question that he's got the very best for us? And that he wants the very best for us. Goes on. So who is to condemn? I'm sorry, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Literally saying, look, with all that has been done, is there anybody now that can stand up and lob an accusation at me? Who is it that can bring up a charge, that can bring an accusation against God's elect? One who has been chosen and accepted by God because they've confessed him as Lord. Really? Is there anybody that can stand up and... And condemn that person when God has done all of this for me. And what was it that he did do? It is God who justifies. End of verse 33. So what is justify? Well, justification, literally, simply, it means God has declared us righteous. Even though we're sinners. Justification is being declared righteous before a holy God. At the point of salvation. And that's what Tim spoke on last week. As we looked at what does it really mean. To be saved. To be justified. To be declared righteous. Before a holy and perfect God. We sang about it this morning. The great I am. The holiness of God. The magnitude of this great God. Who for some reason loves us. Is that an amazing thing? It's incredible. Now we see verse 34. So who is to condemn? 
The next few phrases I kind of label as the four P's of gospel prayer. You ready for this? First, Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's our payment. Him for me. I was a sinner. He was perfect. And yet in my sin, he loved me. He died. He took the penalty. Tim mentioned that word last week, propitiation, that we saw in, in the passage. It's the replacement offering that takes place. And so he substituted, he was the payment for my sin. I couldn't do it myself. No way, no how. Couldn't do it because of my sin. And that's what Jesus did. When he died, he took my place. He took my payment there. But not only that, it says who was raised. Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Here we see the power of God. Even though he died, yet he's not dead anymore. God raised him from the dead on the third day. We see he is seated at the right hand of God. That he is alive. And we see the power of God. We see the the power of the resurrection. And just like Jesus was resurrected, so will I be resurrected one day. And we see that power exemplified. But not only that, we see the praise of God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted. It can only lead us to sing out the great I am and to lift our praises to God. But not only that, we see that Jesus also has a job right now at the right hand of the Father. And that's really the fourth P I label as prayer. It says he's interceding for us. So every time something comes in and and they look at my sin, because I am a sinner and so are you. Sorry. We're all in the same boat that way. And yet when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus' blood. And no accusation can be lobbed against me that Jesus doesn't say, ah, oh, took care of that one. Took care of that. He's interceding to the Father. And every time whatever's going on, you have Jesus going before as my advocate, as my mediator, literally my lawyer in the best possible sense. That's what Jesus is doing. That is, and we talk about going in him and life-altering prayer. It's constantly going through Christ to the throne of God. Amen? Amen. Incredible, isn't it? So that leads us sometimes to a question. So why does it seem sometimes that God doesn't answer my prayers? You ever felt that? You ever been praying over something and praying and praying and praying and it just seems as if God's not answering your prayers. Give you three reasons sometimes why God does not answer our prayers or the uh, say three reasons why it seems that God is not answering our prayers. Number 1, are you abiding in him? John 15, 7 says that we are to abide in Him. Literally, we're, we're to hang out and spend time with Him. Many times we see this distance in our prayer life. It's because there's no connection. We're not hanging out with Him. When you hang out with someone, their interests become your interest. You're spending time. You're thinking the same. You're on the same page with each other because of spending that time together. And that's really what it's talking about, the, the abiding with Christ. And many times there's a disconnect in our prayer life because there's a disconnect between us 
and God. Because we're not spending time together. The second reason is sometimes it's because we're asking for harmful things. James 4, 1 to 3 says, you know, you, you don't have because you, you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss. You're asking for the wrong things. And then you get mad and angry and throw a fit about it, really is what James 4 talks about. And, and so many times it's because what we're asking for really wouldn't be of benefit to us, but it would bring us harm. Sometimes it's just blatantly wrong, and other times it may be subtly something that God knows would actually be harmful for us. Like, for instance, buying a nice sports car right as you graduate. Sorry, Miranda, that's why you didn't get one. But sometimes it's harmful. The third reason is it may not be his timing. It may not be his timing. First Corinthians 4, 5 talks about all that will take place. And God many times is just saying, hang on. And that, that's going to take place later. And the judgment and the, everything. God will bring it all about at his appropriate time in eternity. And it's a good example for us that many times the, the answer isn't no. The answer is just not now. That God's got other things going on and there's just, there's going to be better timing in all this. And God's just literally saying, so just hang on. Trust me. It'll be worth it in the end. So why do sometimes our prayers seem as they're not answered and we say we may not be abiding with him? We may be asking for the wrong things and it may be that the timing is off. You know, Matthew 7, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Jesus gave an example, though. And in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He's talking about prayer life. We're talking about life-altering prayer. And here Jesus says, you know what? Ask for these things. A lot of times you're not getting it because we're not even communicating with God. And that goes back to the abiding with with Christ. And, And he's like, ask and see if I won't give you these things. For everyone who uh, asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and no one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Saying, even you as earthly people, if, if they're asking for bread and you come out and give them a rock, would you do that? Of course you wouldn't. Or, or he's asking for the, for um, for a uh, fish. And so you come out and give him a serpent. Something that would hurt him. Well, of course not. Verse 11 says, And if if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask. Literally saying, look, moms and dads, as much as you like to give gifts to your children, And you're sinful and imperfect and selfish a lot of the times. And even in the midst of that, you know the joy that comes in giving gift to to your children. How much more do you think our Heavenly Father enjoys lavishing things on us? For you parents, maybe aunts and uncles that we have here, grandparents that are seated here, how much fun... Is it at Christmas? I mean, really. 
I, we always enjoyed, you know, Christmas and, and things. And when we were first married, before our children came along. But I got to tell you, when the children came along, the first year, eh, it was still kind of disappointing. Because they just lay there. <clears throat> but it seems like the older that they get, the more fun it is at Christmas. And I, I remember, I mean, we would go to, to the toy store and you walk in and it's like, man, all of these things that you could only dream of as a kid now are like 10 bucks, right? And all those little slot cars and all these things, you end up buying all these things you wanted but you never got as a kid. And, and you have all so much fun. And that's why grandparents always want the little kids to be at their house on Christmas morning. It's not about the kids. It's because they want to play with the kids. And we want to play with that. And you see the joy and the excitement. And the... one of the things we do, and I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Don't, you may not want to use this as an example because we go hog wild at Christmas. In our family, we absolutely love it. And we love this. One of the things that we do, we've got, uh, we, we call them the stackables. We got them like up at Ikea or something one year. And it's a, a bigger box and a smaller box and a smaller box and a smaller box. And a smaller box and more. Eleven of them. Comes down to one like this size. Only, only thing you can get in there is quarters, really. At least that's at least the only thing we're willing to spend money on <laughs> for something that size is a quarter. And so we get these stackables. And I'm telling you, we a lot of times don't spend much money. Sometimes it's like socks. or that, but, but there's something about opening up 11 different boxes with stuff in it. And it's just so much fun. And you see that? And I mean, you would carry these things. Of course, they're, you know, doing this. And we, we did have three stackables, you know, one for each of our children. And then my mother-in-law was with us one Christmas. And she kind of decided maybe she'd like to have one of those stackables too. And so we actually went out and got another one for her and all of it. We love to give gifts. To our kids. We love to experience that with them. We love to see the expression. We love to play with those things over the next couple of days. And if me being a selfish, sinful person loves to do that, how much more is God to us? It's not that God's trying to hold things back from us. God wants the very best for us. Absolutely, God wants the best for us. And that should lead us to gratitude, to thanking Him. So let me ask you, do you know this love? We talked about that last week. Do you have a relationship with this God of love? Have you confessed Him as Lord? Do you believe that He is raised from the dead? Are you living a grateful life because of all that he has done for us. Think back over the last week. Think back of all, everything that went on and all that we have around us. And do you not see over and over and over God's love spelled out, played out in your life? Thank him for it. It should lead us to gratitude. Number two, nothing can take away God's love. Rest secure in Him. Nothing can take away God's love, so rest secure in Him. Picks up in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Okay, Paul's asking a question here. Paul's asking a rhetorical question here. He's saying, so given all this, who can separate us from this kind of love? And the answer, of course, is no one. Who can separate us from this love? Oh, you can do better than that. Who can separate us from this love? No one. And he starts to list out. So, but what about all of the stuff of life? Shall tribulation? Now, tribulation, literally in the Greek, it's talking about being under pressure. Uh, Even in just in in my notes and study, I, I just drew an arrow coming down. When those times where you're just under pressure, you're feeling the weight of whatever is going on. Shall that do it? No. Shall distress. Distress is, gives the idea of being hemmed in. If tribulation is pressure coming from down, the, the distress is the pressure coming in from the sides and it feels like in life that the walls are closing in around me. And even in those times, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Shall persecution? When we are made fun of and abused because of our stand for Christ, in those times, can we be separated from the love of God? Shall famine... Not being able to provide food and put food on the table and when we're times of hungry, shall nakedness, those times when we can't even come about and clothe ourselves properly and shall danger, treachery, those times where we're at harm or shall the sword, there are times when people actually want to physically harm us. Any of those times... Is there anything that can separate us from God's love? No one can. None of those circumstances can. It goes on and says, as it is written, and now we see a quote from Psalms 44:22. It says, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be, to be slaughtered. And this is a point in when the Psalm 44 is when David is crying out to God because everything around him has fallen apart and he's under pressure and he's scared and he's fearful for his own life and he's at one of the lowest points in David's life and he's crying out to God saying, it's like I'm like a, like a sheep heading to the slaughter. Lord, what's going on is what David was saying in that Psalm. And so what Paul is conveying here and God's saying, look, even at the worst of times, When the bottom is falling out and it seems like we are about ready to go under. Count on God's love. Nothing, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the person, nothing can separate us, can take away that love that God has for us. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. No, in all of these things, in all of the circumstances going on, we are victorious. We are more than conquerors, literally saying, we win. Is that impressive? 
No matter what's going on. And I realize with a group this size, there's a whole lot that walked in this morning. I told you one of my roles, I spent a lot of time counseling and, and coming alongside of people. And there is. There's a lot going on. And there's a lot of heartache and there's a lot of pain. And there's a lot of discomfort. And some of those things we, we bring on ourselves because of our sin and poor choices. And other things are just trials. We didn't do anything to bring them on. It's just what God's using to grow us. And it doesn't make it easy, though, in the midst of it. But just remember, you can count on God's love. And because of God's love and because of all that he did in living out that love, that agape love, that we win. That we can be certain that we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven if we trust him as Lord and Savior. That we are victorious. Verse 38. For I am sure. Literally I am convinced. I have beyond a shadow of a doubt. Fully convinced. That. Neither. Death. Nor life. That there's no need to fear death. That as a believer in Christ, we should almost really look forward to death because the only thing that is dying is the physical body. And then we're ushered into eternity with the great I am. There's nothing to fear in death. And in life, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And that we can live life to the fullest for the glory of God. There's nothing to fear in that. And the angels, the angels that God has that are given to his charge to do his work. And and the rulers, it says, literally it's the rulers, some translations say principalities, some of your translations say the demons, even the fallen angels and the demonic world, even they can't do anything when they come up against God's love. Things present, the things that are going on right now. And the circumstances or the future. We don't have to fear the future. On the contrary, really we should look forward to the future. Or powers, miraculous deeds and all that there is. Neither height nor depths. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows and everything in the middle. He says, I'm fully convinced that nothing can separate us from The love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that love. We see in this passage some great description. And Paul took a lot of time and a lot of words to list out all of these different things so that none of us can say, oh yeah, well what about... Nope, not that one either. Nope, not that one either. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. When we understand God's love. Do you see how it drives us to relationship with Him? Do you, you see how it drives us to want to be communicating? It drives us to an active and powerful prayer life that we don't have to worry, we don't have to be anxious, or or we can know no matter what the distress, no matter what the problems, God loves us, God wants the best for us, 
and we are secure in him. I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about um, the promises that God has made to us. Excuse me. Do you realize all that God has promised his children? Those that have come to saving faith, the Bible is full of promises. And I've listed out here my top ten. Top ten promises of God. We talk about God's love. We talk about what God wants the very best for us. Well, what are we talking about here? Well, here's ten or so that I came up with. And I actually didn't. God gave it to us in his word. Number one, Christ meets our needs. Matthew 6, 31 and 33 say that. God meets our needs. Number two, God promises to give us rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. Number three, Christ gives us peace. John fourteen twenty seven and John sixteen thirty three. Do you know that He promises peace? It's there. It's available. When I'm in those times where there is no peace, it's not because God isn't offering it. Number four, he provides an escape from temptation. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No, there's no temptation that will overtake us, but God has provided a way of escape. It says he provides escape from temptation. Number I'm sorry, this is number five here. God provides comfort in trials. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. He provides comfort in trials, in those difficult times and circumstances that we didn't bring on ourselves, but yet they just come upon us, this outside force thrust upon us, that there's comfort in those times. Number six, he delivers us during persecution. Literally, he delivers us through persecution. Through it. During those times. He says, I'm still right there with you. That's First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Number seven, Christ gives us eternal life with him. Second Timothy 4, 18, Revelation 3, 21, and many, many, many other passages that he promises that when we come to him, we can know, guarantee for sure, we'll spend eternity with him in heaven. Number eight, Christ enables us to overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4 says that even though we live in a difficult, sinful society and world system, that God promises we will overcome the world, that we can thrive even in the midst of that, living in that environment. Number nine, Christ delivers us from fear. Isaiah 41.10, 1 John 4.18. Perfect love cast out fear, 1 John 4.18 says. Those times and maybe you're struggling with this fear, with anxiety, with the panic attacks, with the all of the difficult negative emotions. God's promised to deliver us from that fear. Number 10, Christ strengthens those hearts who are fully committed to Him. He strengthens those hearts that are fully committed to Him. Second Chronicles 16, 9. 
I, I couldn't stop there, actually. I, I went with number 11. This one's for my mom and my dad. Christ sustains us in our old age. Isaiah 46, 4. Do you know that? He actually promises, even when you get old, don't worry, I'm still there, I'm still with you. One other. <laughs> I couldn't stop. Once I started going to the promises, I know the 12th one. He promises unconditional love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What what does that mean? It means I don't have to clean myself up to come to Christ. He loves me in spite of my sin. He loves me in my sin and is willing to say, come to me and I'll clean you up. Is that an amazing thing, that unconditional love? There's nothing that I can do to get God to love me. He already does. And there's nothing I can do to stop God from loving me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, unconditional love should attract, not repel. Unconditional love should attract, not repel. And yet so many times it seems like it's just the opposite. Isn't it? Why is that? Well, for all of you Bible students... You know that it started in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, and we see with the first sin with Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God. And they realized, they went through this process then of realizing their sin, realizing their, how exposed they were, literally that they were naked. And so what does it say? They, they covered themselves and then they hid. And God came in the, in the evening and he, walking in the garden and says, Adam and Eve went and hid themselves from, or over in the bushes. They hid themselves from God. They hid themselves from the presence of God as best they could. Because they couldn't fully. God was still aware of everything that was going on. And what did, what did, what did God do? He said, come out of here. Come here. Come to me. Is that not exactly though what my tendency is, whether I'm just going through a difficulty, trouble, what, what, what James 1 says, trials, I, I didn't bring anything, bring it on myself, but I'm going through these tough times, and yet, instead of going to that unconditional love of God, I pull away and I isolate, or other times when I just blatantly sin and I blow it, and even in those times when God says, but still come to me, I still love you. you there's nothing, no sin that, that I will not forgive. Just come to me. And in those times, I go and I hide myself. I go away from the very one, the only one who can make it right. I was thinking back, um, and I'm guessing I was probably six, maybe seven years old. I was probably five or six. Because I know we were still at this house and we lived across from the school there and, and we lived in this house kind of up on a hill and there was a neighbor beside us who had this dog and they had this big area dog with all this straw down for the dog and then on the other side of that neighbor there was a church. And there was a church and, and a parking lot out back and this was the fall. And that day for whatever reason I had been in the kitchen and I swiped a book of matches out of the drawer had it in my pocket, and I'm hanging out with my buddy Jerry Ford. 
And we're over in the church lot and they had raked all the leaves and they had all of these bags of leaves kind of sitting up against the fence in the back corner of the church lot, kind of right beside that dog area that was right there from the neighbors. And and we get into this discussion, I don't know how we got on it, but the discussion went down the lines of, he said that the plastic bags that those leaves were in, that it wouldn't burn. Well, of course, I knew that they would burn. And we go back and forth, arguing over this. And so I said, well, here you go. I'm going to sell it right now. And I got out the matches, and I lit this. And, of course, the plastic just kind of melts a little bit. And immediately, whoop. And it wasn't just one bag. There's like 20, 25 bags. You see where this is going. And all of a sudden... To prove a point turns into utter horror. And we're looking like this. And so we did the only thing that little guys can do at a time like that. We ran. We didn't run to the house. No. I ran the other way and just took off running down the hill. And actually my aunt and my uncle lived down in back behind us there. down those, And we're just chugging along here running as far away. And, and all of a sudden it's taking... Uh, where am I going? I can't run forever. And so I eventually then come back and start yelling for dad. Fortunately, a neighbor across the street saw the smoke and flames and he immediately came over and had the garden hose out and was containing the fire, letting it burn out. And by then my dad was aware of the situation and I was in trouble. Oh, I, I was in trouble afterwards. <laughs> I was in a lot of trouble afterwards. But, but I was in trouble. There was something out of my control. And my first response was to go away from the one that could help instead of going to. Now, I'd like to say that my dad and his great love and mercy <laughs> spared me from any ramifications of that. But on the contrary, my father's great love realized that there was a great teachable moment right here in the lesson that needed to be taught. And so for the next week, I learned that lesson, but it didn't change his love for me. That's the way it is with God. So let me ask you, do you live securely Do you know and understand how great and how awesome God's love is for you? And would your life be marked with security in God's love? Do you come to God when you sin? Is your first response in times of trouble to immediately go to God? Literally. What God wants us to do is to come to him, climb up onto his lap and sit in his lap and talk with him and have fellowship with him. Do you know that? Are you living that out? When we understand and we count on God's love, it drives us to him. Not away from him.